Good evening, church. It's, uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be up here to just share the word of God with you. But before I do, yes, whoa. Um, but be- before I do, I just want to say something. How many of you really experienced an encounter with God during worship this evening? If you did, yeah, just raise your hands. Right, a uh, couple of things happened. Um, we recited or, or we declared Psalm 63 verse 5. Um, I, when, I, when I first read that on the screen just now, um, it sounded foreign to me. That's because I remembered it in the other version. Um, and in the NIV, it says that my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. And that's what it says. And, and Psalm 63 verse 5 speaks a lot to me because of my own journey in the, in the things that I used to enjoy. Um, some of you may think that that's not you know, sinful or whatever, uh, but I used to download a lot of stuff. And I don't mean porn, I mean like music, all right? Um, I, I thought it was download music, and it's like, you know, that time was, um, I can't remember what it was, um, peer-to-peer torrent, whatever it is. Um, and I used to download a lot of it, um, and, and I just kept collecting and collecting and collecting. And, and then I came across Psalm 63 verse 5, and the, and the question that God asked me was, which one satisfies you? And I said, oh, my bad. Sorry, you ought to satisfy, satisfy me as with the richest of foods. I deleted the whole collection. So Psalm 63 verse 5 appeals to me a lot, speaks to me a lot, and I hope it does for all of you. But the second thing was this, I had a shoulder pain. I had a shoulder pain. All right, and, and it's been here for at least maybe five months already, um, and, uh, and then it's gone. So... So I praise God for that. Um, so God is here, guys. I want to just share this with you because we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that a lot of us usually skip. It's called the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you will see or hear at least 42 different names show up, some of which you may know, some of which you may never know or don't even bother to know. But when we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we're going to ask ourselves, God, does your word satisfy me? as with the richest of foods, even if it is about 42 names. So can we commit this time to the Lord in prayer? Father, may your word satisfy us as with the richest of foods. Lord, we we acknowledge your presence here with us. We acknowledge the power of your presence and the anointing that is here right now. And Father, we want to stay focused upon you, stay focused upon your word. And even as we look into your word, may you reveal something powerful about yourself. Maybe it's a reminder, God, or maybe it's something new. But whatever it is, it becomes alive and speaks to our heart and transforms us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I'm going to do something that, is, that, is, that I've never done before. You know, I, like, I, I try and do little things that I've never done before on stage. But here's what we're going to do. We talked about Psalm 63 verse 5 and we say that if... God satisfy, the Word of God satisfies us as with the richest of foods. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. How many of you, you've eaten something really good, and then you say, wow, so good. Okay, those of you who don't raise your hands, you either don't like food at all, or you're on a fasting spree. Right. Um, so, so here's what we're going to do. All right. Now, don't fake it. But if the Word of God at any point speaks to you, 
And then you get this, wow! Say, so good. All right? Now, don't fake it, all right? I'm just like, oh, so good, so good, so good, right? No, that's not the point. But what we're saying is we're declaring that when the Word of God speaks to us and changes us and then blows our mind, we're going to say, so good, wow! Because you know what? That's what happened to me when I read the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I read that and I went, goodness, so good. And I hope, I, and I hope that as, as someone who shares this message with you, I hope that applies to you as well. And you go look at it and you go, so good. Without further ado, let's start with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. Now, I, I really do encourage you, if you have your Bibles with you, open up your Bibles. Don't even bother looking at the screen. This is only for those who didn't bring theirs, um, or if you're new here, we want to make it available for you so that you know where I'm coming from and where I'm going. All right, but here's, so we're going to look at this passage, and I want to encourage you, just like read out every name. Don't like, okay, I will let Wayan finish off the first slide, and the second slide, and the third slide, and the fourth slide, uh, and, and then, you know, uh, move on with the message. But look at every single name. Look at every single name. I missed out the first line in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I'm just going to read it from there, though. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to, to the Christ, 14 generations. How many of you, this is the first time you've read the entire passage of 1 to 17? Has anyone of you experienced this before? Someone comes up to you and he says, hey, you must really meet this guy. 
You, I'm, I'm telling you, you must really meet him. He's going to change your life. He's going to transform you. He's going to take you from the inside out, take the insides out, change it, put it back inside of you. Your whole life will be totally transformed. And then when you ask him, so who is this fellow? Who is this guy? This guy tells you, his name is fooling you. How many of you, you're gonna, you want to meet this guy? Anyone? Anyone want to meet him? Some do. All right. I wouldn't. And here's why. Because I don't know who he is. I don't know. I only have a name. I don't know anything other than that. I don't know what his qualifications are. I don't know what his background is. I don't know his life story. I don't know if he's legit. For all we know, he could be a fraud. For all we know, he could be fooling you. That's not the word of God, but anyway. That's... So now ask yourself, what's so important about a genealogy? What's so important about a genealogy? We started last week looking at this gospel according to Matthew. And as a matter of introduction, we said a few things. Firstly, Matthew's audience were Jews and Jewish believers. So Matthew was writing to a specific audience, Jews and Jewish believers especially. And second is Matthew's gospel is a gospel of discipleship, which means this, if you want to follow Jesus, read Matthew. If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus and be a disciple of Jesus, read Matthew. So that meant that Matthew is speaking to Jewish believers about Jesus Christ and encouraging them, convincing them, and telling them Jesus is worth their time, their energy, their life, being a disciple of. And so for the Jew, one of the most important things they need to understand is his genealogy. Who is he? What's his background? What's his life story? What's, what, what, what has gone before him? Whose son is he of? At one point in, 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 in Jesus' life, there were people who realized, isn't Jesus the son of Joseph who comes from um, Nazareth? And then they despised him. Why? Because they know his, well, they apparently seem to know his background. But what Matthew does is he explains Jesus' genealogy all the way back with a particular purpose. So for the Jews, a genealogy of the man you're going to talk about for the rest of Matthew or the rest of the entire gospel is a necessary feature. Genealogies for the Jews is not uncommon. So if you read the Old Testament, you will find that there are a lot of genealogies that, that are written out, whether it's in the book of Genesis and a really long one in the book of um, in, in the Chronicles. I can't remember which is the first or second, but in Chronicles. And why is that so? Because Jews need to remember and understand their roots. They need to understand their ancestry. They need to understand where they come from, who their fathers were. And that is why God also speaks to the Jews and says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, I'm God, hello. My name is God. He doesn't. He connects the Jews to their past, to their ancestry, to their genealogy. But what sets the Matthew genealogy apart from all the other genealogies in the Bible? What sets 
Matthew's genealogy of Jesus apart. Here's my submission to you, and this is what I'm going to look at throughout this entire message. It is this. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant with man, in brackets, in a manner that Jews can understand. In a manner that Jews can understand. Now, what Matthew is going to explain to the Jews is this. This man that you are going to be following or that you should follow, that you should spend your life learning and understanding and obeying, he is the fulfillment of God's covenant with man in a manner that you, as a Jew, can understand. Why do I say that? There are a couple of things about the genealogy that is unique to other genealogies. I'll give you a summary of these um, uh, differences. First of all, Matthew starts with a summary. He says, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. No other genealogy has a summary. Second one, he divides them into three batches of people. And, and when we looked at the slides just now, I've already divided that into three batches of people based on significant events. The rise of King David, the exile to Babylon, and then the birth of Jesus Christ. Third, he purposefully includes women. Now, that's interesting because in the other genealogies, women are mentioned. For example, the one in Chronicles. And so, for example, uh, Jacob has 12 children. And the Chronicles will mention specifically which are the children of Rebekah, or which were, which were Jacob's children through Rebekah, through Leah, and then through the uh, concubines as well. And so that was how women were mentioned in the other genealogies. But when you look at Matthew, he specifically names certain women with a specific purpose. And we will look into some of that today. Fourth, Matthew was very selective of names. I want to say this at the start. He says 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. He also uses the words become, uh, becomes the father of, or if you're reading the older versions, he says beget, 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 all right? Um, now, what you should understand at this point, it is not necessarily biologically an immediate generation. All right, so for example, when you look at the second batch of people, he names out quite a number of kings in the kingdom of Judah. I'll explain that a bit later. But you also realize there are certain number of certain kings he does not mention. And he skips at some points even four to five generations of kings moving from one name and then skipping a few and then naming the next person. So one of the things you understand, and, and in the summary it says Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now they're not literally the son of David. He's not, he's not David's immediate son. But what he's trying to draw out is he is selecting certain names and depicting them in each batch in the genealogy. Then he mentions 14 generations. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Why? And number six, the lineage doesn't necessarily follow the firstborn. Right from the start, Abraham's firstborn is not Isaac. And Isaac's firstborn is not Jacob. David is not Jesse's firstborn. So the question is, what criteria did he use to determine the names? What criteria did he use to determine the names? 
Now, I want to mention here in passing that there is another genealogy of Jesus. Some of you have already noticed that in Luke, Luke also writes a genealogy of Jesus. But the purpose for Luke's genealogy, excuse me, the purpose for Luke's genealogy is different. He was most likely writing to a Gentile by the name of Theophilus. And so you realize that his, gen- his genealogy traces Jesus' ancestry not to Abraham, but all the way to Adam for a different purpose. So my question then is, what is Matthew's purpose? And Matthew was here to show the Jews that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's covenant with man in a manner that Jews can understand. So before I look at this genealogy, maybe we better get some ground, uh, ground rule understanding of what, the geneal- what a covenant is. All right, what a covenant is. Let's clarify some things about what a covenant is. Now, the word covenant is not a spiritual term in a sense. If you've signed a contract before, whether it's to buy a house or to buy a company, uh, to any sort of contract, all right, you may have already come across the word covenant. All right? But in Scripture, a covenant takes on a very unique form that sets itself apart from contracts or agreements or even promise. One of the best ways to understand a covenant today is the covenant of marriage, an institution that God himself set up and is a picture of eventually our union with God in heaven. So I'm going to explain a few things about a covenant, but draw that in connection with the covenant of marriage, just so that we get a good understanding of what a covenant is. We can spend messages on a covenant, so I'm going to summarize this to three points. First of all, a covenant is an exchange of promises. I promise to do this, you promise to do that. Similar to a wedding day. So when I got married about six and a half years ago, okay, about six and a half years ago, I promised my wife the world. I haven't even gotten half of it. But I promised my wife the world, you know, I said, I will be with you in sickness or in health for richer or poorer, etc. Thankfully, she also promised me the same thing. All right, so there's an exchange of promises made in a covenant. But the second thing that's more important and that begins to set covenants apart from anything else is that it is made on oath and it is irrevocable. That means the moment I've promised it to you, I make an oath on it and I will not, and I'm not supposed to break it at any point. So it's a promise made on oath and irrevocable. Again, on our wedding day, we swore, and I don't use that term lightly, we swore to each other before God and before all of them who were attending the wedding. Some of you, I noticed you, you know, you were here, Pastor Chu. Um, but yeah, so we, we swore before God and man and to each other that we would keep to these promises. And so the only way in which that covenant would terminate is if either one of us passes away. Or in the phrase we are usually familiar with, till death do us part. Not irreconcilable differences. Not till irreconcilable differences do us part, no. It's till death do us part which means no matter what happens, come hell or high water, whether we had a huge fight or differences that seemed irreconcilable or we've hurt each other, we've covenanted to stick with each other and through it all. 
I'm going to give you some biblical examples of that. Remember the story of Hosea, the prophet? Hosea is, Hosea's story is a picture of God covenanting with Israel and saying that no matter what you've done to me, I will keep my promise to you. And so Hosea is, is someone who uh, covenanted with his wife in marriage, but his wife then prostitutes herself, leaves the house, prostitutes herself once again. But what Hosea does, he, he goes out and searches for her, redeems her, and says, I call you back. You are my wife. Now, on, on modern day counts, or, or any day for that matter, this is tough. Because he's been in the right all this while, and his wife is the one who's been in the wrong. And yet he says, I will not break my covenant with you. And then God says to Hosea, tell the people of Israel, that's exactly the same way I look at you. No matter what you've done to me, I will not break my covenant with you. But the next question is then is this. You know, you swear, right? So we swear before God. What does God swear by? Hebrews tells us God swears by his own name because there is no other higher name to swear by. So God swears, and because of the nature of who God is, that he cannot lie, that he is faithful to his word, he can swear on himself, by himself, by his own name, and say, I will keep my promise to you. That's a covenant. The last one, and I think it's really, really interesting, is a covenant unfolds. What, what does that mean? I mean to say this, meaning that as time progresses, our understanding of the covenant becomes deeper, higher, stronger than when you first understood it. Give you back another example. Six and a half years ago, I covenanted with my wife and I understood that this is what I promised to do. My wife was radiant, she was beautiful, she's coming and you now I look at her. How some of you were at my wedding? I actually sang, all right? One of the last few times I sang on stage, all right? But I was like, I sang and she was walking there and like, you know, I thank God for you, you know, da 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 blah, 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 all of that, right? She's coming, she's beautiful, she's radiant. Six and a half years later, she's beautiful, she's radiant. But, I, I can't sing. But I know her now more than I used to. What's good about her, what's wonderful about her. <laughs> and my understanding of the covenant has become deeper, become stronger, become more powerful than six and a half years ago. We have two children now. And how she mothers her children was something I never saw when I got married to her. In fact, I, yeah, I'm quite sure I never saw that. <laughs> but when I, as, as I've grown and, I've, and as she has grown and as the family has grown, we see each other differently than when we used to. But it was much better, much more powerful. And sometimes when we have those differences, when we have those fights and those arguments, and, and any married person would know that it happens. Some of you looking at me, this guy is married six and a half years, okay? He's, he doesn't know what marriage is really like, okay? We're until 20 years, all right? I understand. But from my little experience of six and a half years, my understanding of the covenant has been changed and transformed 
into something that was deep, that becomes deeper, stronger, higher, and more powerful. That's what a covenant is. An exchange of promises made on oath, irrevocable, but it also unfolds. And the Jews are going to realize this because the covenant that God made with Abraham and the words that were used there, the understanding that they had of the covenant at the time was going to begin to unfold and it was not going to look the same as they thought it would. But that's a journey they took with God, a journey that God brought them through to explain what his covenant was. Having said all that, let's get started on the genealogy. And you're like, what? Now only start. Uh. Amen. All right. Matthew starts off with Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then he says this. Abraham. He starts off with Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob. The reason why I tell you that Matthew puts this genealogy to say that Jesus, the fulfillment of the covenant God had with man, is because when you start with Abraham for the Jew, you are starting with the covenant God made with Abraham. Now, there are many passages in Genesis where God speaks of the covenant, renews the covenant, enforces the covenant, um, executes the covenant uh, with Abraham. So I'm going to take the first one, and that is in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. And God tells Abraham, who was at this point not even in the promised land at this, at this stage, he was in his hometown, it says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. Say, great nation. And I will bless you. Say, bless you. And make your name great. Make your name great. All right? So that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Amen. All right, if you were Abraham, what was going on through your mind? I think billboards, right? Abraham. My name, great. I'll be prosperous. I'll be very rich. I will uh, go to this land that God has given me and, and I will make a name. Oh, God will make my name, right? So God will, God will increase uh, my authority. God will increase my influence. And, and then the families of the earth will be blessed through me. I'll do it. I'll do it. And so that's what Abraham actually did. Now, from Genesis chapter 12, God then renews or affirms or executes the covenant in different ways. Genesis 15, he says, and, and Genesis 15 is, is the dramatic story um, where, where the presence of God walks in between cut animals in half. And that is a picture of the covenant that God was making. And he says there, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make your descendants like the stars in the sky. How many of you tried to count stars in the sky? And by the way, if you raise your hands, please, I don't want you to raise your hands because you tried counting in KL. Because you can't see stars. But I was, in, um, I was in Nepal once, 
uh, and, and this was, you know, hiking with my dad and stuff. And, and then there's, there's this little lodge. And so before we slept, I went to brush my teeth and, and the basin was outside. So I was brushing my teeth outside and then, you know, nothing else to see. You look up, right? Billions of stars. So I, I, I tried this, all right? A bit, you know, naive. Maybe not naive, just want to do it anyway. I said, okay, God, or oh, not God, like I said, I didn't talk to God. I was talking to myself, right? So why your frame of vision ends here. And I'm halfway brushing my teeth. Uh. Start counting the number of stars by doing a sweep method. Okay? So one, two, three, four, five, six. By the time I was like 20, I was still here. Right? Well, uh, 2021. 20, I was like, forget it. I still have like, you know, 99 other, 99% of my frame of vision left to count. But that was what God was telling Abraham. Your descendants would be like stars in the sky. In Genesis 17, the covenant of circumcision comes in. And in the covenant of circumcision, God then reaffirms or renews that covenant by saying that, uh, that God will bless him and he will make his name great. In Genesis 22, he says, your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore. I have never tried counting sand. I don't intend to. Uh, it's just pointless. But that was what God was trying to say. So God was making a covenant with Abraham. A very important covenant because not just did it apply to Abraham, it applied to all of Abraham's descendants. All of the people who come from the bloodline of Abraham. At least, that's what Abraham understood. And for many years, that's what the Jews understood. And so if you start claiming your ancestry from Abraham, they say, you're one of us. In fact, the Pharisees like to do this. They say, we were children of Abraham. And so because we're children of Abraham, we have certain rights, we have certain privileges that God gave us or that we can take of God. And so claiming your ancestry to Abraham, and not just Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as well. And the reason for that is this. Isaac, God renews that covenant and says, your descendants will be like the stars in the sky. Jacob's is even more interesting. He says, your descendants will be like dust of the earth. Anyone try to count dust? Anyone doing micro, whatever studies, you know, you, you say, count one piece of dust. It's, it's ridiculous. Don't even bother trying. But your descendants will be like dust of the earth. So if you claim your ancestry from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's your first threshold. That's your first bar. If you claim your ancestry from Abraham, Ishmael, and you're out of the question. But if you claim your ancestry from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you can call my fathers your father as well. And that we are of that same ancestry. The same ancestry for the covenant promises. Then God begins to take a turn. Matthew then says, Judah and his brothers. Why? Because Matthew knows something about Judah that he wanted to point out. And here's what I'm going to share with you. This is about Judah. Now, in Genesis chapter 49, before Jacob, who is Judah's father, passes away, he blessed all his 12 sons. And when he blessed his 12 sons, he read out certain blessings for each and every one of them. But Judah's is very interesting. Why? Because he says, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 8 to 12, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his colt foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Here's a description of something that within Jacob's line was not familiar. Let me put it this way. Jacob and his 12 uh, children, at this time when Jacob was blessing them, they were all in Egypt, but they were their own community. A community where the leader was the patriarch, Jacob. There was no king. There was no, un, uh, there was no practice of there being a, an elected ruler or an appointed ruler. You just followed the father. Next door in Egypt, there was the Pharaoh, but they were not part of that community. They understood that such a thing exists, but they were not part of that community. But yet, Abraham, sorry, Jacob blesses Judah and says, out of you will come a king. Where did he get this idea from? It was prophetic. God was explaining to Judah at that time, or to, to, to the, the 12 brothers at that time, and this was something their descendants understood, that from the line of Judah will come a king, and a king that is not like any other king, because it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him and the obedience of the peoples. This is a position of kingship that would not just be the lifetime of one person. It would, be an, it would be a kingship that would last forever. A kingship for eternity. Understand this in the minds of the 12 brothers at that time. We've never had a king. We don't intend at this point of appointing anyone. And the first time there was ever a king in Israel was many, 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 many years later. And that's also because they learned it from the other nations around them. But yet, Jacob blesses Judah and says, from you shall be a king who will rule forever. So fine, we've got this blessing. Uh, we've, we, we understood that, yes, from the line of Judah, something will happen. And then Matthew then goes on for the rest of the first batch, listing out name after name after name after name, and then he ends with the rise of King David. Now, I want to mention here interesting things about this. You have three women mentioned in the first batch. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Now, I, there, you could have an entire message on these five women in the genealogy. I just want to point this out. Rahab and Ruth were not Jews. They were Gentiles. Rahab was from the city of Jericho, and she was a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite. And if you've seen the history of Israel, Israel had a lot of fights with Moabites to a point where there was a curse and you said no Moabite will ever enter the presence of the Lord. And yet Ruth, a Moabite, became an ancestor of King David and subsequently Jesus Christ. Why? Because Rahab and Ruth pledged their allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Ruth is the biggest example. She says, she told Naomi, her mother-in-law, 
your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. They were not Hebrew. They were not Jew. But because they pledged their allegiance, they pledged their life to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their redemption was to become a part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. When I read this, so good. There's hope, you know, for us. There's hope. Because although there was a curse on the Moabites, Ruth overcame that. Why did the first batch end with David? Is it because, you know, he happened to be the greatest king in Israel? Is it because uh, Matthew was tired? Matthew was a tax collector, by the way. So if you're wondering whether he properly counted 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, I, I tried. Uh, but you can never get a lawyer to count something compared to a tax collector's, right? So I calculated and I thought, okay, la, it's about there, la, huh? 14. Um, but why did the first batch end with David? I believe it was not just because he was, and I consider him the greatest king of Israel, but because at David's stage, God once again covenanted with David. And we see this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8 to 16. He says there, and I will make for you a great name. Doesn't that sound familiar? I will make for you a great name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because that was what God promised Abraham. This will be your land, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, God does not have to make David a house. So when you say house here, he doesn't mean rumah. He doesn't mean a literal house. He means the house of David, similar to how we say the house of kings, so the line of kings. That's the house he's referring to. So when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Remember Judah's blessing forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And this is the killer line. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Some of you look at this and go, yeah, he's referring to Solomon, right? Because he builds the house for, for Jesus' name. But Solomon died, as with all the other kings listed in Matthew's genealogy. But yet, God covenanted with David and said, your throne will last forever. It shall be established forever. Awesome! David's like listening to this and going, yes, thank you, Jesus. You know, David actually says a long prayer immediately after this, praising God for the fact that, who am I? that you would think of me and, and, and give me this covenant and give me these promises. This is amazing. So good. And, and, and he's, he's praising God for all of this. And so we end that first batch with a high point. King David, greatest king in Israel, a king that God renewed the covenant with. And then we look at the second batch of Matthew's genealogy. The kingdom of the house 
of David. Unfortunately, and, 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 and it's sad to mention this, but it's true. Unfortunately, quite immediately after, the kingdom goes into a downfall. First, by the time Solomon passes away, Rehoboam, his son, takes the throne. It is at that time that the kingdom splits into the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. And by the name of the kingdoms, you would know which line the house of David went through, the kingdom of Judah. But first of all, there was a split. Now, that split didn't happen because of Rehoboam. The split already was already understood by a prophecy in Solomon's time. And, that, and, so, and so the kingdom quite immediately after goes into a downfall. There was a split. In this case, we will focus on David's line, which means we'll look at the kingdom of Judah. And that's where Matthew traces the genealogy. Second, not, I mentioned this before, but not all the kings are mentioned here. So I'm going to try and show you from a brief understanding of the kings how many of them were good and how many of them were evil. Now, this is not extremely accurate. First of all, all kings were sinful, such as us. All mankind is sinful, all right? But, and, and you also know this, some of the good kings end up being overtaken by pride and idolatry, but some of the bad kings repented at the end. So my, my depiction here may not be the most accurate, but this is how I get this uh, de depiction. Based on the summary description of every king. So if you read the, the, the book of Kings and Chronicles, you would often see that the moment a king is introduced, they will also say, this king did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the ways of his, and then you name certain father, the kings before him who were evil as well. Or, this king did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, um, similar to what his father David had done. Now, just based purely on that line, that summary, what I did was I decided I'll try and highlight the good kings and the bad kings. So, let me ask, um, well, let, let's just put this in the second batch. Who were the good kings? You had David, you had Solomon, you had Asaph. And some of you are wondering, when was Asaph? Asaph is a musician, he's a worshiper, right? Uh, Asaph is the other name for King Asa, all right? Uh, so Asaph, Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat's story is the one where he says, before they went out to fight, he said, send the worshippers out first. That's the same Jehoshaphat. So you had people like Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Hezekiah, and Josiah. What about the bad kings? The ones who said they, uh, whom the Bible says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. There you are. I'm not sure if it's clear. All right. You've got Rehoboam, Abijah, Joram, Jotham, Ahaz, Manasseh, Amos, and Jeconiah. Now, count. How many good kings? How many bad kings? Seven good kings, eight bad kings. Do the math. How many kings? Fifteen. How many generations? Fourteen. Okay, so Matthew is correct. Lah. He calculated correctly. So it looks like it's evened out. What? Seven good kings, eight bad kings. More or less there. It's not like, you know, one good king and then 14 bad kings. But let me tell you again, Matthew didn't mention all the kings. And specifically in the line of Judah, in the kingdom of Judah, he missed out eight names, one of whom was considered righteous, the other seven evil. The righteous person he didn't mention is Joash. Everyone else, evil. Amaziah, Ataliah, the whole bunch. Je before Jeconiah, Jehoiakim. And after Jeconiah, Zedekiah. 
all these names he did not point out. But all the good names, with the exception of Joash, he mentions. But you see from the story, and all Jews know this, from the time of the king of David, uh, King David, all the way to the exile to Babylon, they went on a downfall. And I thought that the covenant of the kingdom of the house of David was going to last forever. What happened? You know, the worst downfall or the worst, um, the climax or the, the high point of this downfall, which is not really high, is the curse on Jeconiah. And that's the reason why I believe Matthew ends with Jeconiah at this point. Because Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 22, explains this regarding Jeconiah's sin and what he did to the whole of the kingdom of Judah. He said, thus says the Lord, write this man, Jeconiah, down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none, and just, just really let that sink in, none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. None. It ends here. Now, if you're a Jew, you have a problem. It looks like you've gone so low and so far from God that God has also broken covenant with you too. He gave up on you. There will be no king from the line of David. There will be no king from the line of Judah. You can forget that God, you can forget about God making your name great blessing you. That's how the second batch ends. In fact, if you want to know what the story is, Babylon takes over the kingdom of Judah. Jeconiah is taken prisoner. His uncle Zedekiah is appointed king of Judah, but essentially was a Babylonian puppet. He then tries to revolt. He tries to escape. He gets caught with his sons. And then what Nebuchadnezzar does, the king of Babylon does, is he says, Zedekiah, you sit here. I'm going to kill all your sons right before you. And that's what he did. One by one, he slaughtered his sons. And then he takes out Zedekiah's eyes. That's the last thing you will ever remember. You know how evil that is? And you know how far and how low they've gone that, that Nebuchadnezzar would do this to Zedekiah? That the kingdom of the house of David will not just end, it will go so low that it seems that God has just given up on the covenant that he made with Judah. Let that sink in. You can come to me now and tell me, oh, God's grace, you know, God's grace is awesome, God's grace is powerful. But if you don't realize what, God, what was happening to Israel, uh, the kingdom of Judah at that time, you have no understanding of God's grace. The end. Matthew doesn't end there. Hidden in the Chronicles for 400 to 500 years was batch number three. Descendants of the line of David. There's nowhere else in, 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 uh, in the Old Testament is written about this batch number three except for two people, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. These were people who had come back to Jerusalem after the exile to Babylon. But after that, no mention 
in all that silence, someone was actually writing down the names. And you had Eliakim, sorry, you had uh, Abiud, the son of Zerubbabel, then Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Akim, Eliud, Eliazar, Matthew, Jacob, Joseph. Somewhere in that silence, what is Matthew saying? The God of our fathers had not stopped working. The covenant was still alive. You don't know this. It was still alive. Oh, hold up, hold up, hold up. Didn't the covenant end? You know, the end? No more kings from the line of David, the Jeconiah curse, no more blessing, no more glory. Matthew says, no. God did not break covenant. The line of the kings would come alive again. But the king you will have is not the king you thought you will get. This will be the king of the Jews whose title will be posted above him on the cross. This will be the king the prophets actually spoke about. This king whose kingdom will never end. This will be the kingdom that is not of this world, but yet has come to earth. This is the king who will bring a blessing to the Jews and from them to the nations of the earth. This is the king of the covenant, not the kings you place your trust in in batch number two. This is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and his name is Jesus Christ. But Matthew has a problem. He's got to explain this, considering that there was a Jeconiah curse. Considering that the curse on Jeconiah said, none of your kids are going to sit on the throne of David. Did God make a mistake? Did God turn back and go, oops? <laughs> Matthew says no. And this is why. Matthew is careful to mention that Joseph is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. He did not say that Joseph is the biological father of Jesus. Luke says the same thing. He says, Jesus was the son, in brackets, as was supposed by the people to be the son of Joseph. So this means that Jesus is not biologically descended from David or Jeconiah. But legally, Jesus was a son of Joseph. And that meant that through Joseph, Jesus would inherit the promises and the covenant that came through the line of David and the line of Abraham. Think about this. It was not about bloodline. At least as far as the Jews can understand, it didn't matter whether you were the firstborn or the lastborn or you were not even of the line. Legally, because you're a son of Joseph, you inherit the promises and the covenant that was going through that line. Which brings me to the one fact in the whole of Matthew chapter 1 where I looked at it and I went, so good, so good. You realize if you've taken out your Bibles that Matthew chapter 1 does not end with the genealogy. It ends with another subsection entitled The Birth of Jesus Christ. But having looked at that section, I want to entitle it differently. I want to entitle it The Obedience of Joseph. And here's why. Let's look at Matthew. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, remember, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is, the whole, is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Wonderful Christmas story. But here's the killer. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. To be the biological son of Joseph is easy. Joseph and Mary had to make kids, and then, you know, you'd be a biological son. But to be the legal son of Joseph, sorry, uh, to be the legal son of Joseph, and yet be born of a virgin, requires Joseph's consent. And when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant with someone who obviously wasn't his kid, he had every right in the world to divorce her. And so God intervened. The angel Gabriel explains to Joseph, who is growing in Mary, explains to Joseph that the person who is growing in Mary's womb and says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Now, the angel didn't say, you must take Mary as your wife. Do it. He didn't say that. Neither did he say, you love her, right? If you love her, right, you don't make an outcast, okay, for, in Israel for something she didn't do, something wrong she didn't do. He didn't say that. He just told Joseph what was true and left Joseph to decide. Did God know what Joseph was going to do? Of course. God is beyond time. He knew, he knew the end from the beginning. He knows what he's doing. But did Joseph know? Not until he obeyed. His obedience was an exercise of his will, and because he did what he did in Matthew 1, 18 to 25, that passage I read to you just now, we can all go back to Matthew 1, verse 16, and go, that's how God keeps the covenant. Matthew 1, 18 to 25 is the basis for Matthew 1, 16. Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. Because if Joseph didn't consent, if Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly and actually did it, we're doomed. But Joseph, in an act of obedience, continued the line of David and the line of Abraham and brought Jesus to the fulfillment of the covenant that God had with man. Because of Matthew 1.16, I like this. The covenant strikes back. You thought it was gone. They thought it was gone. And then Jesus comes because of Joseph's obedience and says the covenant is back. The covenant has come alive for you to see. All this is awesome. But you can come and tell me, Wayan, I'm not a Jew. What has all this to do with me? Let me tell you, everything. It has everything to do with each and every one of us. Why? Paul's letter to the Romans, and, and we've done a series of Romans before. Listen to it. Read Romans. But 
Yes, more importantly, read Romans than listen to the sermons because the Word of God is the one that's more powerful. But read Romans because in Romans, Paul's ex- Paul explains this. He says, first of all, the blessing is a blessing of salvation, redemption, and righteousness. That's the primary blessing. It is not about political authority. It is not about political influence. It is not the ability to wield power over everybody else. No, the primary blessing is of salvation, redemption, righteousness through Jesus Christ. And then he also says, although the covenant came to Abraham and his offspring, Paul says the offspring of Abraham was by virtue of Abraham's faith, not bloodline. I'm going to pass you this passage in Romans chapter 4, verse 9 to 12, where Paul talks about specifically the covenant exemplified in circumcision. He says, is this blessing then, the blessing that God covenanted with Abraham for, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And by that, uh, meaning us Gentiles. He says, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before. Now, if it was before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision only as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That means you and me. So that righteousness would be counted to them, to us as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, the Jews, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That means that Abraham is not just the father of those of the Jews. He is the father of those who are Gentiles, but who have the same faith that Abraham held on to. That means you and me. We are Abraham's offspring. The God of our fathers is also our claim. I can say the God of our fathers because we hold to the spiritual ancestry of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because we hold to that spiritual ancestry, we hold to the promises and the covenants that God made with Abraham, not just applicable to the Jews who follow in the faith of Abraham, but to the Gentiles who also follow in the faith of Abraham. What does this genealogy have to do with me? Everything. Everything. One last point. After the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke, the Bible records no more genealogies. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant. We don't need a genealogy to prove that the covenant continues. When we came to faith, Paul says in Romans 11 that we became grafted to the vine And if you listen to that grafted to the vine, you go back to Judah's blessing, the vine shows up. We've been grafted into the vine. We are now in Christ. We are now in Christ. Christ is enough. We don't need any more genealogies. We don't need to trace our ancestry to anybody else. Christ is enough. And if Christ is enough and we are all in Christ, all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. That is why we pray in Jesus' name. It's not some tradition. 
when you pray in the name of Jesus, you are relying on the promises that God has made. And because God covenanted with it, He cannot lie and He is faithful to His word. All of God's promises, God remains true to it. I don't know about you. I'm not going to make an altar call today. But if the genealogy of Christ has excited you about who Jesus is, I want you to join me in a time of worship. We're going to do this, and I want to encourage you to do this. We're going to come to God in worship. If you have to leave, you really, 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 really have to leave, by all means, please, quietly. But if you have time, let's worship God together. Let's worship God because when we thought we were down low, the covenant strikes back. When we thought that our sin would get the better of us, when we thought we were hopeless, when we thought that God would have given up on us, God says, no, I have kept my covenant and I will keep it to the end. All my promises for you never ended. The covenant struck back. And because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant with man, whether you're a Jew or not, the promises apply to each one of us. And that promises is not for us to just selfishly claim for ourselves. That promises are supposed to bring us to an, an adoration of the God of those promises. So we're going to sing this song once again. God, you're so good. And when you feel in your heart of hearts that you want to worship God and just say, God, you're so good, I'm going to invite you to stand. You don't have to stand now. Don't worry. But if deep in your heart you feel God is worthy of my worship, rise with me and stand. Friends, this week, I want to encourage you, read the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Remind yourself that this is the God who came back for us. This is a God whom we thought left, whom we thought broke the covenant but remain faithful to his promise and worship God. Father, in the name of Jesus, may your word become full in our lives. May it be like riches of foods to our lives. May it satisfy us, O oh God, even if it is just 42 names, O oh God, but your story lasts eternity and so we praise you God be with us in this week ahead Lord we give you glory we give you praise in Jesus name we pray amen amen let's praise God